Hey everyone, this amazing ESO Network show is brought to you by our fine sponsor, Amazon.com. Please remember to shop Amazon for all your geeky needs, no matter what time of the year it is. All you need to do is go to ESOPodcast.com slash ESO Amazon, or click on the Amazon banner on the ESO Network webpage to go to our e-store. It's the best way to shop and the best way to support this program, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Okay, that's enough of me babbling for now. Now on with your regular scheduled show. Hi, this is Mark. Congratulations. You have found this amazingly awesome show. Chances are you're listening to it right now on whether it's iTunes or Stitcher Radio or some other mobile app that allows you to stream this amazingly awesome show to your ear holes. And I can't stress how awesomely amazing the show really is. But did you know that you can also catch the latest episode of this show on the Tangibound Network? That's right. Go check out TangibondNetwork.com. You can look them up, and you can listen to it right there. It's even mobile-friendly. What more could you ask for? Which means you can pull it up on your iPhone or your Android, even your Windows phone. Yeah, who has one of those? But still, point remains. You can do it. You can do it. Check it out. TangibondNetwork.com. Listen to this show, the latest episode, every time. Check it out. I'm Chris Farrell from the official GunnaGeek.com podcast, a proud member of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're listening to now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other geeky podcasts over at GunnaGeekNetwork.com and get ready, because geekiness begins in 3, 2, 1. On today's episode, we have an awesome lineup of feature stories to cover. First up, Josh Peterson checks in as we talk some Marvel and ponder if there's too much of a good thing with all the superhero projects out there that they have in store for audiences this year. Then Josh sits down with Chris Smith from Inside Sports to give us an update on the NHL at the halfway point and fills us in on which teams might be one skate closer to the Stanley Cup and those who are closing in on the penalty box. Then the discussion turns to the Nintendo Switch, with Rob McCallum of Nintendo Quest filling us in with his thoughts on the most anticipated gaming console this year. All this, plus we have interviews from this past CES with HyperX and GameSir, and why each has some really interesting gaming peripherals. It's another full slate of goodness here, courtesy of your friends at Retro City Games and Rob McCallum Films, as we delve one more time into the pop culture cosmos. Welcome to the pop culture cosmos. Once again, it's another edition of the pop culture cosmos. My name is Gerald Glassford, along with my good friend, Josh Peterson, the author of Vendetta Dark. How are you, my friend? Good, good. It's good, good to be on. All right. It is indeed the Pop Culture Cosmos. We are heard every single week right here on the Podcast Radio Network. We're also available on so many other different outlets. And I will tell you why. If you do miss an episode on the Podcast Radio Network, you can also check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Podcast.com, and also the ESO Network. 
the Tangent Bound Network, and also the Gunna Geek Network as well. And I will tell you why that's a great option in case you miss us, or if you want to go ahead and subscribe and check out their, all the stuff that they have on their networks as well. But if you want to, it's a great idea because we will provide a little bit extra bonus material in case for all those people who want to download the show i'm telling you it could be an episode of gamercast could be a special edition of game source could be uh something that possibly josh might have on the queue for you but also the wine woman of words that may be one of those different things we're going to go ahead like i said for all the people who subscribe to us on those various audio outlets or also as well that likes to download our show we're going to do that for you as well just in case you can't catch us every Monday night on the podcast radio network. So it's like, it's like a prize in a cereal box. There you go. Here you go. That toy. There you go. I want that toy. I want that. You dig right through the cereal. Ah, it's a I'll, pencil. Why? A, yes. Yes. It's oh my goodness. Uh, but indeed it is another great addition of the pop culture cosmos. Just want to give a big shout out to my arcade. I'm wearing their burger time shirt today that they, uh, so graciously you let me have at CES 2017. I hopefully I don't have to return it back. It would be kind of, you know, that kind of bad. But anyways, I uh, want to give them a big shout out. If you want to know more about My Arcade, they're opening up their site, myarcadegaming.com. Plus, we also have a video on our sponsor site, Retro City Games. Also as well, they are available, going to be popping up on their YouTube channel. And also as well, you can check them out on last week's episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos. Well, we are now talking Marvel. Marvel, Marvel. It's marvelous. It's a marvelous day here on the Pop Culture Cosmos. And I'll tell you why. Because it's 2017 and there is a ton of Marvel coming out. So if you haven't had enough Marvel, watch out because a whole lot more is coming. It's great for for those people who are really into Marvel. But Josh, I want to ask you, as the theme of the day right here at the Pop Culture Cosmos, could there be such a thing as too much Marvel? Uh, there could be, but at this point, like I don't think it's going to happen this year. Well, the I reason think- why the reason why I ask is because let's just count it off right now. We've got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, we've got Thor Ragnarok, and those are the Disney Marvel related movies. We've got the Sony Marvel related movie Spider Man Homecoming coming out also this year. Plus, if you watch Netflix, you already know you're getting a ton of Marvel there with the Defenders and who else is a Punisher? Iron Fist. Uh, Iron Fist. And then also, let's not forget what they do for ABC with the, you know, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that. So, and then Legion for FX. So really, it's, it's, it's just out there with all this Marvel. So again, I ask you, is there such a thing as too much Marvel? I, I it's that's tough because I feel like if Mar if there's going to be too much Marvel, it's going to be something that Marvel does to themselves. But like right now, Mar they've been really clever in the way that they're marketing things. So because because they have um, Avengers of Infinity War and all of the everything that they're doing is building up. They're introducing these heroes: uh, Daredevil, Punisher, Spider Man, Thor, uh, Iron Fist, the Defenders, and they're like yes, I want to see all of these people together on the screen. And, uh, you know, they're keeping it under wraps about whether or not that's going to happen. But I think until Avengers Infinity War happens, 
there's not going to be Marvel burnout. Like if anyone's going to kill the comic book genre and movies at this point, it's probably going to be DC. Well, I, <laughs> it's just when it out, just blame DC. But I ask you this because you had referred to a comment that Steven Spielberg had made a little bit too much. As far as superhero movies, a lot of acclaimed, uh, individuals in Hollywood, whether the directors or whatnot, have have started to sound off on their distaste for too much in the way of superhero as, as far as superhero movies are concerned. So I ask you this again, like you said, DC is also doing a little bit out there with you know the Justice League and Wonder Woman and obviously the CW, which should be renamed the DC Channel. Because of all the stuff that's going on there with Flash, Supergirl, and, and you know all that, Legends of Tomorrow, and then they're doing Fox with Gotham. So with all that stuff out there, could there be just a little bit of backlash, not by hardcore fans, but again, by the general audience at large? Honestly, there's almost zero original content out there anymore. Like Most of what we see are franchises or comic book-related things. So it's not... It's not a question of will people get burnt out of comic book stuff. It's more a question of when they will get burnt out of comic book things. Because, like, at, at this point, I have uh, – have you been watching, like, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, the Arrowverse? Do you watch that? Uh, bits and pieces, and I understand how they're connected together. But, uh, you know, like I said, uh, for me, who's not as much invested in the DC Universe – it does get a little bit tiresome to see the things over and over, the same themes over and over. The Flash is still, I think, a very good character, uh, very appealing, and he seems very appealing up in the upcoming Justice League movie, although I think it should have been the same character, but that's, that's another story. But I, I just see that that for me, it it's getting a little bit to a, be a burnout point on that end, on the DC Universe. On the Marvel end, not yet, but... Again, like I said before, Infinity Wars come out, that could happen for the general audiences because you've seen as far as the major movie for for Marvel each year, Captain America Civil War, which in essence is an Avengers movie, but they won't tell you it's an Avengers movie, did not earn as much as Avengers Age of Ultron, which did not earn as much as, as the Avengers itself, so... Again, is there a slowing disconnect among general audiences over the Marvel product? I, with Avengers Infinity War, I think they might be able to pick up their lost momentum. But they're really – I know they have a plan, but it seems like they're putting out some properties that people don't really care about. Like uh, Captain Marvel, I could do without seeing a movie about that. Black Panther is an interesting character, but it again, it's a fringe comic book character like Doctor Strange, Ant-Man. Um, and, you know, that that might be the problem, too, is that people haven't heard of a lot of this stuff. But to me personally, I like I stopped watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I've stopped watching uh, Arrow and Flash just because, like, it's such a headache trying to keep up with all these. It's like when you walk into a comic book store and you're, you know, you want to read something, but they're on issue like six or seven. So you go back trying to find issue one and two and they, they're missing a few. So you're like, oh, I don't even want to bother with it anymore. I think that they're putting out way too much weight like there's there are far too many options like you don't need to have like six television series plus you know whatever else they have in the works and then have the movies out i think you need to keep it on one medium or else people are going to get really tired of it well I, and that's my point it's just i'm wor- 
I don't think I need to be worried about it. That's up to Disney and Marvel, but I almost sounded like I was worried about it for a second there. But I am just thinking that this could be an issue going forward because I understand that the the it's on the line as far as movies that you said may not be necessary because it seems like they have to have a uh, like Doctor Strange and where they have to have a central character to the Marvel story be introduced entirely in a movie. Whereas the one character which I still today, and I've told you about this many times before, character that hasn't been given a movie and has been introduced over several movie arcs, Black Widow should have her own movie. I think that would really do a, a great service right there. I think that is an attractive character to audiences, and I think that would is the would have been the obvious choice for me than making another Ant Man movie or maybe I, I I'm just at a loss as far as when it comes to where the Marvel universe should be going as opposed to where it is going now. Black Widow is a marketable product. And I, I really think they, Marvel has yet to really fully embrace that concept. Do you agree on that? I totally agree. And like, I think that feminism has made great, great leaps in recent, you know, the recent years. But like, I think Marvel is still hesitant to take a chance on that. And not to mention the fact that Black Widow doesn't really have any superpowers. I think that maybe that has something to do with it. But they've also, they've done, you know, in their defense, they've done a good job of kind of telling her story across the movies that she has been featured in. But I, I pe- people like her and I, I don't understand why before they get too in depth with her story, like her and Hawkeye, her, where she came from. I know in Avengers, uh, the last one, Age of Ultron, they kind of went in depth with where she came from and all that. But but even as far as when they were in the original Avengers movie itself, when they're having that battle scene, as far as they're fighting it, you know, the, the front lines in New York, and they talk about how this reminds them of Budapest, right? Budapest, yeah. So, yeah. So, that, you know, you can take, that's a story right there contained in and of itself, as far as the origins of how those two characters, beloved characters, Hawkeye, and to an even larger extent, Black Widow, that are familiar with audiences already could actually be united in some fashion. I also know that Jeremy Renner has voiced his opinion in recent interviews saying that he would be receptive to obviously doing a, a Netflix uh, series himself. So that that's something that if, if for Black Widow and Hawkeye, they could see that realm as well. Yeah, but uh, that's just me. Uh, that That's my opinion. You know, I, I'm on the fence. If you call me a, a, a Marvel hardcore or just a casual member of the audience, I, I know you're more adept in the the comic book realm. Nick Fury, that would be an amazing move to go more in depth on his character as well. Right. But um, I, when I think of Black Widow, I I kind of have this idea of, uh, of a Wolverine Origins uh, fupa. So, I mean, if they were to make a, you know, you have this character has been featured across so many movies. And then after like, what, like 12 movies, they're trying to make an origin story about her. Uh, and it's kind of, I'm afraid that the same thing's going to happen like with Gavin Hood's uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine movie, where you kind of have, you try you try too hard and then it doesn't end up fitting into future films. So, I mean, if you notice with most of the Marvel films, they're origin stories, but Black Widow already kind of exists. So maybe that's their fear. And I can understand from that point of view, but yeah, she's a character who would definitely be interesting. Nick Fury too, like in the Ultimate Comics, he has him and Wolverine go way back. So they'd have to, you know, have that character obviously, but he's got an interesting story. It's super interesting. 
But they're both floating around right now and in that universe as far as after the events of Civil War. And, and they both could be utilized in a way where you're telling a story from both the here and now and also flashing back to to how it all began. So I think you, it has been done well. Has also been done very poorly. I'll, I'll give you that, but I don't know. It's just for me something that I think that Marvel needs to make sure that it doesn't do that and, and overload the casual audience on way too much of its product, but especially before the Infinity Wars comes out. Because if they're riding all their eggs in the basket on on the Infinity Wars to carry them for the next five ten years, that's going to be saying something right there. And, and in order to do that, I. You you don't want to give the the audience too much of a taste beforehand, but I, I'm I'm thinking maybe at this point in time it's kind of leaning in that direction. I'm seeing a massive fan drop off after the Avengers Infinity War is over. I'm I, I think a lot of people are stoked for it, but and they want to see where it's going. But afterwards, they're going to start. Uh, introducing more more fringe heroes because they're going to be out of the big five, I guess you can call them. You know, I can see a massive fan drop after that unless they really start pulling from some of the more interesting parts that they may not have access to. I couldn't agree with you more on that. And and let me ask you this, okay? Like you said, there's going to be a big drop-off after Infinity Wars, which is, you know, naturally could happen. What is the major event after Infinity Wars that's done that they could build up to that might be something that could go on the silver screen and reignite that flame for audiences maybe 10 years from now oh uh, they have secret wars uh the secret invasion there's a lot of event comics that have taken place that they could uh they could feed off of but the problem is like you can't do like the civil war you can't do these stories properly unless you have access to this cache of characters that are currently owned by uh, legendary fox like there's just there's there's a lot of story that needs to be told but they can't tell it properly fans if if you're going to do something like uh secret invasion even civil war like that was disappointing to me is because there's so much in there that people would that there's so much great story but they can't tell it just because of the the contract problem so i mean there's a lot of events that they could they could do but it, it needs to be told right which means they need to get the characters back and you know assuming x-men makes a another you know mistake like apocalypse then you know maybe they can have those characters back i think that's something that not a lot of people have thought about with where it goes from here and after the infinity wars you seeing that drop off i think it's a great call i think it's a spot-on call once again this is the pop culture cosmos again i'm on with josh peterson the author of vendetta dark Make sure to check out the rest of the show because we've got a great show lined up for you. We've got Rob and I talking the Nintendo Switch. So tell me a little bit more about what you got coming up for us here on Pop Culture Cosmos. Uh, yeah, the the halfway points approaching in the NHL and you know with the All-Star game coming up. So I sat down with Charles Smith who does the NHL power rankings for CBS and he's a beat writer for the LA Kings and the Anaheim Ducks on Access Sports and his own Inside Sports channel. So he, uh, me and him sat down and talked about it. He gave me the, the full rundown on his view on who's going to make it to the Stanley Cup, who's going to do well in the playoffs, who's not going to do well. So it's, it's a good piece if you're a hockey fan. Uh, awesome. That's great to hear, Ian. That's coming up later in the show. And also as well, I'm going to be talking to HyperX and GameSir from CES. Uh, my interviews there with those great outlets as far as is concerned for, for not only just 
great listening, but also if you're a gamer, whether it's mobile or you're playing on the consoles or you're playing on the PC, check out what HyperX Gaming and also GameSir, as far as mobile controllers, have to offer. So check that out. I'll be uh, doing interviews with both. We're coming up here, right here on the Pop Culture Cosmos. Hey, this is Chad from Hyperschmidt, and you're listening to Pop Culture Cosmos Podcast. It's time for more sarcasm, more gloating, more pop culture BS, and ridiculous video game chat as GamerCast returns for Season 2. My name is Rob McCallum, and this year, once again, I'm joined by Mr. Glenn Stanway and my lifelong friend, Jay Bartlett. This year, the show moves to a slightly different format, favoring a more unedited adventure that lets us include more topics as we get together once a month to vent and celebrate everything going on in the gaming industry today and yesteryear. So if you like the idea of arguing with us, though we'll never be able to hear you, then you definitely want to check out GamerCast. Season 2 is really going to take it up a notch. That's GamerCast here on the PCC, the Pop Culture Cosmos, on iTunes, and on Podbean. Josh is standing by with Chris Smith from Inside Sports discussing the NHL. But first, let's spend some time with HyperX as they showed off their line of products at this year's CES. And we are live once again back at CES 2017 Digital Experience. This is Gerald Glasper from the Pop Culture Cosmos once again, bringing you HyperX. The great folks at HyperX are going to take some time out to take, tell us about the great products they have. I get a lot of their stuff in, and I'll tell you what, I've been itching to come here to CES. Specifically, one of the places to see is, well, HyperX. And right here with me is Mark Tecuno. For the people that are not familiar with HyperX, HyperX is the gaming division of Kingston. And we've been in business for about 14 years now selling memory products. Okay. Three years ago, we got into headsets. And we now have five or six different products in the market. We've sold over a million headsets in the first two years, so we're fairly popular with the gaming market. We are a gaming company. Oh, absolutely. And, and we deal with a lot of gamers. So if you want to talk about that for a second, actually... One of the things we do is we actually sponsor 30 teams globally in the world. So a lot of esports teams we really sponsor with headsets or keyboards or other products. So we were very involved with that market. We're also involved with sports personalities. We work with Jonas Jarebko from the Boston Celtics, who owns a team called the Detroit Renegades. And also in Street Fighter, this guy named Daigo Umahara, who is a very famous Street Fighter. All of those people are part of our esports community that help us to promote and bring the message out to our customers and to our gaming community. So what are some of the products that they use from HyperX? Okay, so uh, what we're showing today at CES, we're showing a new Revolver S gaming headset, and this is part of our high-end gaming headset product line. The key this is a brand new USB dongle or audio controller that's part of the product, which includes Dolby certified surround sound, and basically, this is the first dongle that supports Dolby, which allows us to do either theater effects or gaming effects where Dolby is possible to use for surround nice. sound purposes. Very, very nice. So that would be the first product we're showing. Second is, we call the Holloway FPS gaming keyboards. Basic designs, very small form factor. We have special keys if you're looking for something so you can see where you're going to place your fingers when you're playing. A lot of hotkey action there going on. They, we're using Cherry MX 
switches. Blue switches were the first ones in October, and this week we're announcing the new red switch and brown switch versions of this product. So this is the $99 keyboard for gaming. Okay. The third thing that we're showing this week is our very first mouse. We call the mouse a HyperX Pulsefire. It is a mouse that's for pretty much 98% of the market. People are up to 3,200 DPI, which is the speed that you move the mouse across the pad. It supports up to 32 DPI, but we actually have four different settings. So you can change it all the way down to 400 if you want better accuracy, or all the way up to 3,200 if you want to move across the map very quickly. So this is the $49 mouse, and it is shipping in the April time frame. Okay. And the last thing that we're showing tonight is a Alloy RGB gaming keyboard, which we are in development work for now. We're showing the hardware, showing the fact that we have 16 million colors available, and we're continuing to develop it. We're putting the software together for this, and plans for this is about the third quarter of this year. So we're basically expanding our accessories lineup in addition to all of the memory products that we already have been doing for about 14 years. That's, that's amazing. That's a lot of growth. And that's a sneak peek right there. Like I said, not coming on to the third quarter of uh, this year, is that correct? Uh, for this particular keyboard, yes. Oh, well, that's uh, very interesting indeed. That's a sneak peek right there, so I uh, truly appreciate it. So if somebody wants to know more about HyperX products, about where to get them, but also a little bit more about HyperX products themselves, where do they need to go? Our website is hyperxgaming.com. So okay. basically go to hyperxgaming.com and you see all the information on all the various products that we have along with videos with our esports and gaming teams. We have a lot of videos that they've done for us part of what they, when they work with us. So it's, it's a good site to go to for good information on HyperX. But can I also from there go ahead and purchase from there directly or do that does it divert you to major retailers you across? You can buy direct or it can also direct you to ETL or retail sites that carry our product. We're basically carried in about 126 countries worldwide. So oh, you'll find it retail, retail in the United States pretty much anywhere. That's awesome to hear. That's awesome to hear. So that's HyperX that's coming out with a great line of headphones, mice, and also gaming keyboards. And also if you check them out at HyperXGaming.com, you will actually see what they have available right now. So check it out. Once again, it's been a pleasure, Mark, talking to you live from CES 2017 at the Digital Experience. This is the Pop Culture Cosmos. For the latest reviews and opinions on everything pop culture, head on over to our brand new site, www.popculturecosmos.wordpress.com. Josh here from Ghost Toasters. I'm sitting here with Charles Smith of uh, Axis Entertainment and Inside Sports, and we're going to be talking about the NHL a little bit. So we've reached the halfway point in the season, and things it's, it's been a weird season. A lot of injuries, a lot of uh, teams that weren't doing so well this year are doing really well. Yeah. And teams that did really well last year aren't doing so well this season. So what So if you want to talk about the Dallas Stars, why don't you just say that? Yeah, let's talk you know? about the Dallas Stars. <laughs> well, firmly, let me just say everybody, if you want to see the weekly NHL power rankings and actually done by someone who truly watches all the teams, not just half the league like a lot of East Coast writers do. Uh, CBS Local Sports, uh, CBS Local Los Angeles. I do the weekly power rankings out there. Updated every Tuesday online, so you may want to go ahead and check that out. And for uh, West Coast fans, if you want to watch some, if you want to hear someone make sports predictions that isn't a Ducks fan and actually knows stuff about <laughs> hockey, 
Charles Smith is your man. I'd say with the, with the Dallas Stars, we didn't start there because they were a playoff team and, you know, a star-studded roster with the likes of Jamie Benn and, uh, and Jason Spezza, guys like that. So they should be generating a lot of offense. And this is a classic problem here. One is the goaltending is horrible. In, in Dallas, and that's so when you have a team that they know going out, they have to score at least four goals to win the game. Uh, that kind of erodes the confidence. And the other part is, on that team, they really lack uh, leadership. I mean, on ice leadership, that fiery personality. So, you know, like I said, Jamie Benn is a great player, you know, Jason Spetz is a great player, but those aren't guys who are going to lead you into battle. That's the problem. Their, their personalities are just kind of, uh, you know, Personalities are not very strong, so I think that's the real problem they have in Dallas. They're going to need some roster changes there to uh, to get the grit that they need to actually become a true, not just a playoff team, but a true contender. There's playoff teams and there's contenders. And this was a team that was put together to actually contend for the Cup, and now they're floundering around and not even going to, probably not even going to make the playoffs. Let's talk about goaltending for a second. So mm. there's, it's it's been a really weird season for goaltenders. Um, yeah. Ben Bishop is kind of caught in limbo with his contract issues with Tampa right. Bay, and Luongo is injured more than he's out on the ice. And I was even reading something where they had someone from their marketing department actually play goalie for them. <laughs> In the Florida Panthers, yes, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, and even like the L.A. Kings to or Carey Price, let's, Carey Price, like he. What what's going on with him this season? What he's he was on top of his game last season. He was prime for playoffs, but this season he's kind of slipping a little. Well, bit. the problem with Montreal, one, um, they've got a couple of things wrong, and I think this is what's going to ultimately uh, lead to their downfall. And this is why Montreal fans, which you know the real Montreal fans who like live in that area, who half of them truly think they could come out of the stands and coach the team. They're di- yeah, they're like Toronto yeah. fans. So, what it is, is um, you, they don't have the depth they need, really, up front. And also, they're going to be getting uh, Alex Galchenyuk and uh, also Andrew Shaw are going to be back. They've been out since early and, uh, and mid-December. Uh, Brendan Gallagher's been down now. He's going to be out for a few more weeks. But Carey Price and you have Max Pacioretty up front. So, you got that uh, strong goaltending, and then you have basically one strong forward who does a bulk of the scoring. Then you have Michelle Terrian coaching, who... Terrian, if we remember, the Pittsburgh Penguins had to actually fire him and replace him with Dan Bilesma before they could win the Cup in, in 2009. Right. So it's not, I'm not sure if he can get them over the hump, but the Montreal fans are cautiously optimistic. I love Shea Weber on the blue line, though. That was really what they oh, needed because yeah. yeah. P.K. Subban never was really a fit. Even as good as a player as he was, there was just something about the Montreal, the team, the area maybe, that he just didn't fit in with with their plan, Shea Weber is a is a Canadian's defenseman. I mean, that's the type. If you go back all the way to uh, like the seventies with with Serge Savard and Guy Lapointe and all those guys, was, I know that was before you were born, but <laughs> you can look them up. You can look them up online. And Lapointe, there's an e on the end of the name. So Lapointe. Yes, exactly. Larry yeah. Robinson, guys like that. Shea Weber's a throwback, so they love him there in Montreal. Right. But it's just a matter of those little things, and like I said. Beating four different teams in four different best of seven series, <laughs> can they do that? I don't know. That remains to be seen. And uh, you know, same thing with Tampa Bay. I like John Cooper as a coach, uh, as a as a person, but I don't know if he's the guy to really lead them into the promised land. They got a lot of talent on the roster, 
But I see undisciplined play. Like, there were three games in a row I think they gave up six goals for three games straight. Yeah. And that's, at this level... He's, I mean, he's taken them, like, do, right. kind of there. Very There's close. Just, it's, a, it's the same thing with, like, Bruce Boudreau. You know, his, I, you call it Game 7 cursor, just that block that keeps them from jumping up into the next set right. of games. Like, they just completely fall apart at the very end. Well, you got to think, and they'll always say this, but, you know, it's one of those, if the ifs and buts were candy and nuts, it'd be Christmas every day, but 2015... <laughs> When the when Chicago beats them in the Cup final, you got to think if Tyler Johnson doesn't doesn't suffer that wrist fracture, that yeah. probably ends differently, and that's Tampa Bay winning the Cup. But that's why you have to win the Cup when you have the chance. They had some bad luck, and then last year knocked out by the eventual Stanley Cup champion Pittsburgh Penguins again. So both years they can say they were knocked out by the best team in the league. Both years they lost to the Stanley Cup uh, final, right. and then they lost to the team that would eventually win the Stanley Cup. So. They're very, 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 very close. But now you think they may have capitulated and you see them sliding back a little bit. Well, let's look at standings in the West right now. So mm-hmm. you have Chicago Blackhawks are at the top right now. So <laughs> They I'll, just got shellacked. By the, I think it was the Rangers took them down 6 to nothing. Jeez. I think, yeah. Well, I saw like Lundqvist is having some. He's having some games where he's letting a whole lot into the net that shouldn't go. And then he's having these games where he's just on it. And what, what you're seeing with Lundqvist is finally, um, you know, you feel a little tap on your shoulder. You look over, and who is it? It's father time. He's just saying, <laughs> hey, Hank, just want to let you know I'm, uh, you know, Teaching. looking forward to, your, you know, Teaching. seeing you, spending some more time with you. Teaching some humility. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Lundqvist is good, and that's what you see with great players is, and like they said about Gretzky toward the end of his career, it was... Uh, Gretzky, there was a point where he was the great one, and he was great all the time. But then, toward the end, they said he's great in spurts. And that's what you're kind of seeing with Lundqvist. So, he may still have a good playoff run in him, but it's a matter of the workload during the year. Maybe he can't do that much anymore. So, it's one of those where you got to limit the minutes and maybe save him for the playoffs. And, uh, you know, he'll be okay. But I love Hank. He's a, a great guy and... You know, obviously, first ballot Hall of Famer and definitely deserves it. But then again, the problem with the New York Rangers, head coach is Alain Vigneau. And I don't know if he's the guy to lead them because he was at the helm for the Canucks for all those years. He was, he was headed the Canucks when they, were, when they lost to the Bruins in 2011. That was a series they never should have lost. Yeah. You know, all due respect to the Bruins, but the Canucks were the better team. They, the Canucks should have won that series. He stands behind the bench and lets the team just completely fall apart, and I thought he should have been canned after that. But, you know, to me his value is a little bit specious. And, you know, same thing with if we go to, uh, you know, look at Washington, what they're doing this year. They're playing well. But then you got Barry Trotz, good coach, solid coach. Washington Ovechkins. Right, exactly, yes. (laughs) Alex and the Flying Ovechkins, (laughs) yes. Yeah, Yeah, so... You know, same thing, Barry Trotz, good coach, solid coach, but he hasn't taken a team to the promised land yet. The other guy who has, though, you know, Columbus Blue Jackets, you look at them, they're right. playing well, you know, so. And Tortorella is behind the Tortorella. bench, John Tortorella. Right. 2004 with the Tampa Bay Lightning. So he's got them uh, hitting on all eight, but we can get back you to the West a, now. A lot of these coaches are just kind of like circulating. They're not. Mm-hmm. Retreads, as they're, they call them. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not them. like going, they're not. Out of the business, but they're just getting recycled, and other people are putting their hopes in. I mean, sometimes it's working out. Well, but other what happens times, is, like, as a GM, you want to hire somebody 
The one thing is you want to hire somebody who can lead the team, but you also want to hire somebody that's not going to cost you your job. Yeah. So you can. there's certain coaches where you can say, well, you look at his record and what he's done, it was a safe hire. And so you can't blame me for not thinking that he was, he was going to take the team to the Stanley Cup final. Right. But then again, you know, hire coaches like, you know, Mark Crawford, uh, uh, what's his name, Bob Hartley, guys like that, who, yeah, they won cups. Those guys who were coaching the Colorado Avalanche teams back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, Joe Sackick and Peter Forsberg and all those guys. It's <laughs> like, man, come on, I could have coached that team. Yeah. And those guys kind of lived on the fumes of those Stanley Cup wins for many years, and both of them are very mediocre coaches. It's like people who go to high school football games still wearing their Letterman jackets like 10 years after they graduated. <laughs> Al just, Bundy. If they just put me on the field, I, I, I would show these kids, put me in a jersey. <laughs> I got this. All right, but you know what? I got sidetracked. I'm sorry. Western Conference. Okay. Western Conference. We'll so talk about we, yes. we have a lot of people who, a lot of hockey fans who watch football are comparing the Chicago Blackhawks to the Patriots, the Patriots and mm-hmm. they're just like that team that is always there and they they just they're going to go to this the, the final or at least really high up in the playoffs and they're, they're going to be like, a tough out it's going to be tough for the Kings I don't know if they'll make the playoffs this year and plus Jonathan Quick being out Peter Budai has done filled in admirably in Quick's absence the Ducks have three solid lines there with up front, I think Antoine Vermette was a great pickup. Now you got Getzloff on the first line. You got Kessler. You got Vermette down there on the third line. And Getzloff is finally playing. Like he's... Yeah, he is. But I think their problem is, uh, you know, I don't know about their goaltending because John Gibson's a good goaltender. He is. Uh, Jonathan Bernier is a good goaltender. But which one of those guys is really, when it comes right down to it, can they truly lead you through the jungle? And that's the problem. I love Gibson. I've watched him play, and he's, he's solid. But every now and then, you know, gives up a softie. But I'll tell you, I've analyzed the Ducks, and here's the reason for their playoff failures in recent years. Everyone looks at the – and Getzloff and Perry, you can look at their scoring and how it's dropped off in the critical game sevens. But the real problem is they have an active defense. Very good. And Cam Fowler, I think, is taking his game to another level. Cam Fowler, Sammy Votnin, Hampus Lindholm, the main guys there. But if you watch in the playoffs, what happens is those defensemen stop jumping up into the play and adding those little scoring scoring chances they normally get in the regular season. Once they start playing more conservative, that puts more pressure on the offense to score. So they're not getting that odd goal here and there that they're is, used to in the regular season. Is it a fear of getting fear. put in the box or is it a fear of letting a, getting, goal, a breakaway go by? Exactly. Or? Once it gets into the playoffs, then you're not so likely to take a chance. Yeah. You know, because you jump up from your position and, hey, you're one one little turnover away from it being the puck going the other way and into your own net. Right. So if those defensemen stay aggressive as they are in the regular season, if they stay that aggressive in the postseason, the Ducks can go somewhere. If they don't and they back off and all start playing conservative like they have in recent years, you're going to see the same result out there in Anaheim. Right. Okay. So... Tell me about you. You do the power rankings. Tell me about your predictions, just based on what you've seen so far. Well, it's it's easy to just pick the top two teams and say these teams are going to go. So pick the Sharks from the West and the Penguins from the East. It's like playing the other fantasy hockey team. Yeah, it's <laughs> one of those. That's a very safe thing to say. But I would say that uh, I do think I really don't see a team better than the Sharks 
in the West right now. And I think St. Louis kind of, they reached their high point last season when they went to the conference final. And that was, that's about it for them. Uh, you see them sliding back a little bit this year and maybe not the same identity. Ken Hitchcock, the coach, is in his last year there, but uh, they're not going very far. You know, Vladimir Tarasenko is a great player. They got other guys on there, fun to watch, but I don't see St. Louis really making too much noise in the postseason. I got San Jose there. You know, maybe Minnesota, we'll see. I could see a Minnesota that's, San Jose conference final and see the uh, Bruce Boudreaux team maybe losing six or seven games in the conference final again. <laughs> Gets <you> game seven. <laughs> but I like uh, and you know I like Pittsburgh in the East. I think Pittsburgh is a, is really truly the team to beat. Teams that could challenge. You know, like I said, Montreal has deficiencies. Uh, the Rangers maybe and uh, you know Columbus. We'll see what they're they haven't been through the war. Yeah, right. So we'll see how tough they are, but hard to bet against either of those teams. If I had to pick a dark horse, though, you know, I would say probably Minnesota. And, you know, in the East, yeah, who knows? Who knows? It could be, you know, could Montreal possibly get through? We never know. You carry Price could steal a game or two in a critical series. Right. And if Pittsburgh were to get bumped off or something. If Pittsburgh gets bumped off somehow in the, in the East, it's, it's basically wide open. You could say any number of, of four, you know, four teams probably right, could get there. They're, I mean, they're, that's the class of the of the East. Like, if you were to guess one team so far would take the Stanley Cup, who would you? I I wouldn't bet against Pittsburgh repeating. Okay, <laughs> and I would take if Pittsburgh and the play the Columbus Blue Jackets in a in a seven game series right now. I would say Pittsburgh in seven probably. All due respect to you know it's great goaltending in Columbus with Sergei Sergei Bobrovsky, right, playing great. And then you know with the with the goaltending in Pittsburgh is is pretty solid too. So, but yeah, with Murray and with the I don't know Mark Andre Fleury, you never know. He can go out there and stop everything and throw at him, <laughs> and then he may go out there and allow you know pull five a, goals on four shots pull a steep nash on us and just stop playing hockey for a bit <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's pretty tough yeah so pittsburgh in the east and uh i like the rematch i like the rematch with with san jose in the west san jose's got the deepest roster deepest roster good goaltending brent burns on the blue line it's up and down the roster san jose is the most complete team in the west there's yeah they're solid all around there's pittsburgh, really chicago's like- good but chicago has Holes, they don't have the depth that they have when they won the cup. Yeah. And it's the same thing up against the cap, you know, and they have those little, uh, you know, they, they so they wind up being a contender for the, you know, a, a playoff team, not necessarily a Stanley Cup championship team. And maybe now the Sharks can finally get even for, <laughs> if they remember it, for the uh, 2010 conference final when Chicago knocked them out oh. in the conference final en route to winning the they, first cup of this current uh, dynasty that the Blackhawks have. They really have tasted a lot of defeat over the years. They have. And everyone forgets they went to the cup final two years in a row. Yeah. 2010 and 2011. Yeah. But everyone says the Sharks are chokers, the Sharks are chokers. Uh-huh. It's like conference final two years in a row really isn't bad. All right, guys. Well, if you want to hear more from Charles Smith, uh, you can check out his websites at officialinsidesports.com. All right. Thanks for listening in. Coming up in just a bit, Rob McCallum and I are sharing our thoughts on the Nintendo Switch 
But first, I stopped by the GameServe booth at CES to be one of the first to check out the brand new M2 gaming controller for the iPad and iPhone. We're at the Pop Culture Cosmos, available on the Podcast Radio Network, the ESO Network, also the Tangent Bound Network, and other great audio sources. Catch us also on YouTube and also as well on Facebook Live like we are right now. And we're at GameServe. They've got a great lineup of products right here for you in the mobile and also virtual reality scene. All righty. And I'm here today with Yu Chen. Okay, yeah. How are you today? Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank Have you for inviting us. Appreciate yeah. it. Next is our uh, best new product, uh, M2, the first iOS gamepad. Okay. Yeah. Your first iOS gamepad for the uh, for the for the Apple phones? Yeah, for the iPhone, iPod, and iPad. Oh, iPad as well. Sweet. Yeah, it, it's cool, and we have officially launched this product on, on Kickstarter now. Oh, okay. Yeah. You you can get an incredible discount on Kickstarter now. So if they yeah. go to your Kickstarter program that's available right now, they can get a big discount on the M2. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's oh, super early bird price is forty-nine US dollars per inch. So uh, how does the M2 go ahead and revolutionize gaming on portable devices such as the iPhone and the iPad? Um, have a rubber coated hand handheld. Okay. Yeah, it's very comfortable and uh, the. Uh, it's very precise. Oh, it definitely, yeah. it definitely has yeah, some fastest, it, comfortable. It definitely has uh, some similarities to the Xbox One uh, controller, which is also considered one of the most comfortable uh, controllers that are out there. So, if definitely a lot of people familiar with that would definitely like to get into this as well, because obviously the comfort there, and when they play games. Games are becoming much more popular out there on iPad and iPhone, so really, yeah. this could really be a big help as far as their gaming scores. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the price is very affordable. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. To famous brands. Oh, that's great. That's <laughs> yeah. great indeed. So, yeah. what else do you have for us today? Uh, but the M2 that's available, like I said, on Kickstarter, you can get it now and get a big discount if you go ahead and back their Kickstarter program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's GameSir, G-A-M-E-S-I-R. So that's awesome. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I, yeah. It looks like it's a very, uh, very sleek, uh, as far as a very comfortable controller as well. Indeed. Now yeah. uh, I know Karen had uh, and I spoke beforehand about you also having some VR toys that that people may be interested in, or also as well the nice gun. How does that uh, play out? Yeah. Just don't shoot me. That's all I ask. <laughs> yeah, we have a gun. And, and we have uh, also have virtual reality glasses, and you also have, yes, uh, a gun that's available. Hi, how are you? You, you, Leon, how are you? All right, he looks like he's ready for action. He's gearing up right now as we speak. Oh, nice. So, when you're playing with the VR, as far as it's concerned, with the uh, with the unit that I'm seeing now, and I, I see as far as it's concerned, you 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 have the gear and you have the gun and and obviously the glasses on as well. 
Um, what are you are you playing through the device itself, or do you need attachments such as a Google uh, Android device or? Games available for Ah, so the game server, so yeah. the game is built into the system as well. Uh, attached to the VR glasses to give you that virtual reality experience, and also as well to utilize the gun to go ahead and shoot those targets immensely. So that's yes, yes. that's uh, great to great to see, and uh, obviously great to hear as well. So. We truly appreciate it. And we're here again at GameSir, and that's here at CES 2017. We truly appreciate both of you joining us on the Pop Culture Cosmos. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. To find out more about all of the products from GameSir, just head on over to GameSir.hk. Up next, Rob McCallum and I are talking the Nintendo Switch. This is the Pop Culture Cosmos. GameSource is your number one source for everything video games. Each week we bring you the best of the video gaming world from sites all over the internet. Like us today on Facebook or follow us today at GameSource and you'll stay up with the latest in information and news plus also about all the great things we're doing on our GameSource Facebook, Twitter and GameSource YouTube pages. Stay up to date with the video gaming world right here at GameSource. And we're back with more of Pop Culture Cosmos. This is Gerald Glassford from Pop Culture Cosmos and GameSource. Again, reminder, we are available on the Podcast Radio Network every Monday night. Just want to go ahead and check us out there or any one of the number of downloadable options, Mixcloud, ESO Network, Tangibound Network, Gunna Geek Network, Mixcloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, podcast.com and if you do we throw in a little bonus for you for download you know because we know subscribing to us is a great way to catch the show so we truly appreciate it and we also want to thank the people who partner with us as far as making this show possible so we want to shout out to uh, pogue media to uh, gamercast with j robin glenn to galaxy far far away to game source to Mario Party Wars to Wine Women of Words, obviously one of our big helpers, Retro City Games. And the guy who is going to help us out right now talking about the Nintendo Switch, that's Rob McCallum from robmccallumfilms.com. Well, just waking up and uh, recovering from the video game presentation that rocked or didn't rock the world Thursday evening. Yeah. It's it's all over the place. Um, it uh, is a very mixed kind of uh, I don't know chunk of information to dissect. Well, you know who better to talk to about Nintendo and and what they've got going on than the man who who directed one of the quintessential films of of this uh, century as far as video <laughs> game documentaries are concerned. Um, that's Nintendo Quest. Uh, <laughs> I was supposed to paying you a compliment, man. You gotta gotta take it in stride. But okay, uh-huh. I don't think I can take film of the century so far for Nintendo Quest. I just don't think one I of the one of the quintessential one of the quintessential. Okay, I'll take it. Video game documentaries of the century is what I said, but that's okay. Nintendo Quest, you gotta check it <laughs> the, out. The century is pretty short so far. Well, it was kind of you know that's you could that's read into that what you want. Right. Okay. Uh, um, it was a box quote, but anyways, uh, Nintendo Quest, you want to check it out, obviously, always available on robmccallumfilms.com on how to get it, but uh, talking about the Nintendo Switch, they just unveiled it this past Thursday, 
a lot of fanfare as far as going in. The presentation itself, you know, it, it had its ups and it certainly had its downs. Um, I'm going to say that first and foremost. But before I go into my thoughts on it, let's go with you, Rob. What did you think overall in regards to Nintendo Switch? Okay, so there's a there's a bunch of things to discuss here. Overall, I thought the presentation was pretty boring. Talk about like a third-rate um, announcement when we've seen almost rock concert-like demonstrations from Sony and, and, and Microsoft in, in the past years, whether it's at uh, E3 or, or their own different now, events now, that you, have happened. Do you think that was because, obviously, they, they when they debuted it, they debuted it from Japan and, and uh, trying to use... Obviously, sometimes those segments, when they're at E3 and, and whatnot, when they use translators, something does get lost in, in a translation as far as maybe from an aspect of overall production standpoint. Um, should they have done different things? Like maybe Reggie should have done his own presentation for the North American audience and maybe the European audience as well? I mean, I'm not uh, too concerned with trying to divide up Nintendo for them to cater their own audiences. It wouldn't be horrible. I mean, everybody, I think, in North America is quite familiar with Reggie and his brand. They've done a really good job at pushing Reggie as the kind of spokesperson. I don't think the tra- the translation issues and it being in Japan are, are really the problem. I think you could still approach a show like that that's a little over an hour long and still have a little bit of fanfare and excitement in it instead of just speaker waiting five seconds later for a translator to recap in this back and forth play. Um, it was encouraging, I guess, to see Nintendo do something live, even though most of it was introductions and, and, and outros to these taped segments instead of just, you know, streaming a, a Treehouse presentation or, or something of the, of the ilk. But I don't know. It just, there's too many examples out there right now for people to see something and get them excited about. And I think that is the theme through this whole announcement, whether it's the announcement itself or the content people wanted to get excited and we were all waiting for that one moment to get excited. And I don't think it ever arrived. And I still think there's a ton of information that we expected to hear that hasn't been delivered yet. And and I agree with you on that. Um, They were pretty vague as far as, you know, the expected um, internet service that they're going to be doing uh, similar to PlayStation plus and similar to Xbox live that they're going to be down the road charging consumers for, um, that's kind of you know that that's obviously was a step in the right the right direction for them because hopefully it will actually build a service that that's um, well that's the thing hopefully it'll build a service and not discharge people money yeah and, and it that's what I'm hoping because they've as as I've said on many occasions their their service has been substandard uh, and by a wide margin in the industry uh, I think the friend code uh, as far as way of connecting is atrocious and archaic. Um, I think their their way they've dealt with the online multiplayer form has been archaic, I think, for, for lack of a better term. Um, but I think hopefully that if they are going to provide a service that's more up to speed with, with their two competitors or can find ways to make it even better, that's hopefully very good, especially if they're going to be charging uh, later this fall. Uh, in regards to that service is concerned. But let's get into the particulars. Um, the unit itself is debuted um, at, at a, it's going to be coming out on March 3rd and at a robust price of $300 uh, US dollars as far as it's concerned. 
Um, the major titles that are coming out as far as, well, actually the titles within the release window, uh, there's not many, which is another concerning point right now, but uh, the ones that I have listed and that I could find um, were that are coming in that launch window. They may not come out launch day, but I kind of included um, uh, some that may be coming in the launch window. Um, let's go for Just Dance 2017, I Am Setsuna, Super Bomberman R, has been heroes, one two switch, arms, and of course the one that is going to hopefully move the console itself, uh, which was a highlight for me because I have never, you know, even when I've played Zelda, I've never really gotten into the whole series like you and I have discussed previously, as far as your thoughts on it as well. But Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, which to me, would look like the best part of the presentation. So your thoughts on the actual price and availability as far as the initial entries are concerned? I think the price point is fine. 300 for a new console isn't, you know, all that crazy. I mean, that's what the Wii U launched at, I believe. But but we're talking about a, a machine that's underpowered compared to its competitors. Well, that's and... a whole another discussion. And the Wii U is underpowered compared to its competitors, too. And it still launched at a $300 price point. You know, I, mean, I know people that are saying it should have been two forty nine or even two hundred dollars, but uh, I don't know. I think three hundred dollars is fair for a launch day system. I think you're going to see it discounted to two forty nine on Black Friday, and probably the second year for sure at holiday, or they'll put in a, a pack in game like one two switch or something like that. So I just, you know, people want it right away. This is the price that they're going to have to pay. This is no different than PlayStation 3 that launched at $500, right? Like, it was a big price for that console. Uh, PlayStation 3 actually came out even higher. I, you know, $700 was the ticket there. Oh, okay, uh, well. Six, six and $700, I uh, believe, was the ticket there. Um, and And... I agree with you on that end, but I still think $300 for initial price for, for nothing. You're not even getting a pack-in game with it, uh, which uh, differs. Well, I mean, what did you get for your PS4? There was no pack-in, right? And it was, what, $399? Yeah, that's true. Good point there. But uh, in this competitive marketplace where you and I both know the week before or month before that PS4 and Xbox One may just go ahead and drop the price back down to 249 trying to take away more of its, uh, you know, as far as drawing power, plus the fact that the accessories themselves are, are varied prices that are really on the higher end as well. And a lot, I noticed a lot of people online and a lot of gamers out there, including Nintendo hardcores, which are actually trying to pre-order the system are all voicing their, their opinions strongly against the high prices of all the accessories. I'm just glad that a lot of the accessories are available. We never really saw retail versions of extra Wii U game pads, and I know that bothered a lot of people. So the one accessory that is for sale, and it's only $89, is an extra dock. So if you've got a cottage somewhere, or if you want to have it on another TV, instead of just walking around, take it from maybe you know the TV in the living room to your bedroom or something like that. I really like the idea that you can have an extra dock. I thought that was really smart of them. The Joy-Cons. Well, you know, look at the Xbox Pro Controller, right? I mean, these things are really small. It, they're essential to playing, but you also have the Pro Controller, too, that you can buy instead of extra Joy-Cons. It de- I think it's going to depend on what the gamer wants and, and who it's catering to. And you mentioned some of the things that you, you liked and you encouraged, and so did I. But what are some of the things that you wanted to hear more about? Because, like you said, the presentation overall was pretty substandard. 
Uh, I guess, you know, just maybe it, maybe it'll be like an E3 thing. Just like, what is the rollout? What is the plan for this? Like, we know Mario's coming at holiday. It's the only holiday title we know of. And it was nice of them, I guess, to tell us that at least it's coming out this year. And we have an idea of what some of those launch window games are. But just to have an idea for what the lifespan of the Switch is going to be like year one, you know, year two, and how that's going to vary. I mean, that's definitely more of a, an E3 thing, but uh, they could have used E3 to kind of build upon what they, they did at this announcement. In the same way that this announcement built upon the trailer that released in October. Yes, yes, I couldn't agree with you more on that. So that's our thoughts on the Nintendo Switch. Rob, I know you still got a lot of things coming down the pike, especially with robmccallumfilms.com. 2017, and hopefully you'll get some promos that remind all our listeners about this soon. Uh, 2017 is a huge year for Rob McCallum Films and Pyre Productions, uh, the official handle of all the work that I do. We've got the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Power of Grayskull, will drop later this year. We've got Box Art, a gaming docu-series where you get six episodes hearing from probably, I think, a dozen artists or so that are responsible for iconic retro gaming art, all the way from Atari through the NES and even current iteration of stuff, so you can understand what the story is behind the covers of the games that we love and really identify who the people are responsible for those iconic images that have defined gaming until now. And, of course, one of the titles that I'm looking forward to most is on Kitty, called Kitty Origins and Evolutions, that chronicles the 20-year history of the heavy metal all-female act from my hometown of London, Ontario, Canada. It is a nice up-and-down roller coaster ride of what it takes to survive in rock and roll, especially being a woman in an industry that is heavily biased towards a boys-only club. Rob, I'd like to thank you again for, as always, stopping by. You are a major, major part of the pop culture cosmos. Truly appreciate you talking to us today regarding the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, happy to be here and uh, share my thoughts. I'd like to thank everyone who came on to be part of the show. If you have any questions or comments, just send us a note on our Pop Culture Cosmos Facebook page, our Twitter channel at Pop Culture Cosmo, or just send us an email to popculturecosmos at yahoo.com. Thanks again so much for joining us here for another great edition of the Pop Culture Cosmos. It's another beautiful day in paradise, and here's hoping you have yourself a great day. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek, classic, current, and beyond. Be part of the crew at esonetwork.com. Tangent Bound Network. Let your voice be heard. Tangentboundnetwork.com. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos. As a bonus for all of you out there that's doing it, we want to thank you so much by letting you in on a great episode of the Wine, Women, and Words, which are also available at any time on YouTube, Podcast.com, and Google Play. On this episode, they're talking to Scott Wilbanks, the author of The Lemon Collie Life of Annie Astor. Here they are, Michelle and Diana, with their awesome podcast, on everything relating to the world of literature. It's wine, women, and worse. Thanks for listening. We're live! <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wine, Women, and Words. 
Uh, we have a very exciting evening. We have Scott Woolbanks, author of The Lemon Collie Life of Annie Astor. That's my book. <laughs> Isn't it awesome to see your book? I always wonder what it feels like to walk into a bookstore and see your book on the shelf. It's 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 weird. <laughs> I think the weirdest experience is when I walk through an airport and I see it in the airport bookstores. I mean that's that's just really weird. And you just kind of you kind of want to hang out and see if somebody looks at your book so that you can kind of you know I mean this is just you just do the stupidest things. No, I I do that. I do and be like when I finally get my book. (laughs) When I finally get a book published, one thing I want to do is just walk by and autograph randomly, and then walk away. I just you know I I just I run this really kind of fine line. I'm I'm a goofy person, and I am actually I'm a real people person, but um, I get really shy about the book, which is very oh really, very weird for me. But yeah, I do. I feel like I would walk around and just kind of like place it in weird parts of the bookstore so no one would forget about it. Like, go this way. There's more. I have friends and I have, you know, fans who um, who actually photograph, take my book and like they'll actually go to bookstores and they'll, you know how bookstores will line your book up with you just see the spine? They'll actually take it out so you can actually see the whole book and then they take photographs and they send it to me or or they'll put them in really, really odd places. Like you said, put them in odd places and take photographs and send them to me. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, um, while I was reading the book, Diana had read it a little while ago and had talked about it so much. I went, oh my gosh, Michelle, you have to read this book. It's amazing. And I've learned long ago not to question Diana's taste in books. Absolutely. Don't question Diana's taste in anything, really. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> not your taste in artwork. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I started tweeting Scott earlier in the month while I was reading it. And he told me to feel free to, you know, send any questions his way. And, well, I have a list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am fortified. So- I'm ready to go. Oh, good. <laughs> so, Diana, do you want to kick us off? Um, you know what? I'll let you, um, I'll let you kick us off. I'll let you start with the first question. All right. Well, the first question um, is the token, um, what are you drinking? <laughs> or no, well, it's more, <laughs> what do you enjoy to drink when you're unwinding with the good Okay. Stuff? Well, this is, okay, what I'm drinking is, quite sadly, um, this is soda stream with sugar-free mm-hmm syrup in it because we're actually going to um some friends house for dinner later on tonight and i am an alcohol i'm a, a wine lighthead i mean i'm just really I, one glass and i'm a total i'm an idiot <laughs> one glass of wine so i have to kind of parse it out so this is right mm-hmm. now so but to answer your question um the uh, like we were talking earlier we're kind of cheating here um we have this product in New Zealand that's called Clean Skin. It's a generic label, and it's actually um, a label that um, where the really top-notch wineries, we've got some great wineries here in New Zealand. After they've done all their bottling, um, they have some wine left over, and they don't want, um, they're, they're afraid that it's an imaging issue, so they take their, this really wonderful quality wine, and they put them in these bottles called Clean Skin, and the best is um, their Shiraz, and you don't know which winery it is 
um, particularly, but it's the best wine. It's incredibly incredible wine, and you're getting it for pennies. And so we're kind of stocked up on clean skin. Shiraz. <laughs> I love the Kiwis. I love New Zealanders. We we recently went to Fiji in August, and almost everybody was a Kiwi there. And yeah, I love yeah. it. I love people from New Zealand. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Mike's what's one of Mike's routes that he flies he actually flies um, they, they call them double bangers because he'll actually fly out in the morning he, he flies crew for Air New Zealand he's a, he's a flight attendant okay. he, he does long haul and he'll actually fly out to um, Fiji and then they'll uh, they'll be on the ground for maybe an hour and he turns around and he flies back and it's probably a probably a 12 hour day for him mm-hmm. he's in Fiji a lot but he's never anywhere but the airport <laughs> Which is unfortunate because Fiji is beautiful. And it's yeah. much cooler for you guys. It was, it was like good 12 hours just for us to get there. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we will get there. But, you know, he flies so often that when we have holiday time, he just wants to live at home. You know, so, which, is, you know which, which I kind of understand, which is fair enough. Now we're heading stateside for Christmas. So oh. we're going to go visit my, my family in Austin. So and okay. that's a lot of fun and we're going we'll be we're going to tootle around new mexico beforehand that's going to be our little vacation so we're going to go to albuquerque santa fe taos and we're going to work our way down to um las cruces to go see okay. carlsbad and then okay. work our way to places nice. that'll be nice yeah I'm my own road trip in two weeks to chicago permanently we're moving there so and so I'm, oh wow yeah Right That's in the middle gonna, of winter, we're moving to, like, the coldest city in the States. Alyssa, <laughs> well, I, I love Chicago. I think I, it's an extraordinary city. The architecture there is amazing. That's a long drive. Yep. Yes, it will be. With, with two kids and a puppy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just have my wine yeah, stuff. I was to get there. Fair enough. <laughs> But uh, we do have a ton of questions about your book, but I'll, I'll let Diana start because um, I might not stop. <laughs> well, the term lemoncholy is never actually referenced in the book, um, but it's one of the major themes that's in Annie's life and obviously matches her, her wonderfully quirky um, wild spirit. Uh, so which came first, the word or the character? The character came first. I have to, I have to make an admission the book went through so many title changes. I mean, I can't, I'm kind of surprised it doesn't have identity indigestion. The, oh, my gosh. Because the original title for the book was Abbott's Door, after the magician oh. Abbott. And um, my publishing house had you know, let me know very quickly that that was too boring. So I had... Um, I had to kind of like do you know go on this this treasure hunt for a title, and I was I probably sent them thirty titles. Mm-hmm. And they missed <laughs> every single one of them. Didn't like any of them, and then I was kind of getting desperate. So I um, I was on. I remember I was on the computer, and I was googling. I knew that I wanted to evoke um, a turn of the century vibe somehow with the title. And so I was putting the word Victorian in these word searches. I came across a, an online dictionary for Victorian terms. And so I'm just scrolling through, and there's, there's some hilarious words in this. The, the words were heard. 
And I'm just scrolling through it, and I came across Lemon Collie. <laughs> they, the Victorian um, um, definition for Lemon Collie was actually, it's just a synonym for melancholy, so that wasn't going to work for me. But uh -huh. I liked the word so much that I co-opted it, and I just made my own definition. And I, so I just you know, took the word melancholy, and I merged it with the phrase, if life gives you lemons. And okay. to, to basically mean, you know, I'm making the best of a bad situation. And, mm -hmm. and that's where I came up with the term lemon quality. And then how I came up with the rest of the title is, you know, another story altogether. But <laughs> because, you know, I came up with a title that was basically a paragraph long. And, I <laughs> to keep, and it's still a really long title. But it's a really good title because that's actually what drew me into the book. Because I found it on NetGalley. And it was where I discovered it. And, yeah, I was looking at it, and I was like, what's this book? This is such a weird title, but it's interesting. And it's like, well, let me give it a chance. And I honestly, to be honest, I did not expect to like it. I really didn't. And then I, kind of, I fell in love with the book. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, one of the first here's – here's another funny thing is when the Burke – book was first published and I was getting feedback from people a lot of people were talking about how clever I was to have used um, a neologism in, in the title and I was like yeah and I had no idea totally was. <laughs> I'll take credit for that genius it's cool <laughs> but now I do <laughs> so yeah the, um, the character came first it was definitely the character okay well, she's an awesome character. She actually uh, reminded me a lot of Diana when I was reading her because Diana, um, when I first met her, she, she and her husband did the, the Renaissance fairs, and I went with her. Oh, you oh, can oh, did a show. My new costume. Can you guess what this is going to be for? Oh, is that yeah. part of your um, your rebel something? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be the rebel forces, right? It's a scout trooper. I yeah. started doing a scout trooper outfit. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> so I was first, and I've decided to join him and become a scout trooper. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so just Annie's, so you tell you were just Annie's <laughs> wardrobe and her taste. So I was like, oh, no, this is why Diana liked this book. It's, <laughs> it's her. <laughs> but um, so, and this I've always wondered this because you know when when you're in high school and you're reading and you're reading Romeo and Juliet or whatever you're reading and the teacher goes and you know what do you think about you know the white dress what does that symbolize that you know she's pure and, and I always wonder okay does the author sit down and think I'm going to make her wear a white dress because she's pure and I want people to to think of that so in your book you have a lot of imagery and symbolism and I was reading the questions in the back of the book for the the book club and they were talking about the imagery of the crows and the totem and the roses was that is that an intentional thing that you added to the book or did that just kind of happen um it was both actually um the roses were um, I folded them into the book now you have to understand I wrote this book it was a stream of I wrote it completely by the seat of my pants and and I when I wrote the first the first draft, I wrote 135,000 words. I wrote almost 500 pages in a little over two months. 
Oh, wow. Now, you have to, now, you know, the caveat being that it was, you know, the worst first draft in the history of first drafts, but I just kind of threw it out there. And, uh, and the roses were, were, so the roses were already part of the, um, the plot line. And so I did play on them. The ravens, the crows, I added intentionally um, as, the, uh, as the theme started to mature in my head. Um, those, those, those crows became very important. So you see them throughout the book. And um, they, you know, I kind of leave it to the reader to, make, to decide what those crows mean to them. But um, they're, they're, it's a very powerful image to me. And um, what was the, oh, angels. Angels was the other image. Um, that was, that was, that was um, retrofitted in, reverse engineered in. I put that in intentionally. So the roses just happened. Um, the crows, um, I definitely you know put them in for the for the sake of theme and image. And the same thing with the angels, or the angel. Sorry. <laughs> I love that part of Christian storyline, but we'll get to Christian storyline in a bit because me being the time traveler fan and the huge Doctor Who nut, I love the time travel aspect of this book. Oh, that's great. <laughs> So, was it now the time travel? Were you, were you really big fan of the time travel? Are you a big fan of magicians? Since the magician was what brought this about. Oh my God! You want, you want the boring truth? Well, actually, the truth isn't that boring, but it's not at all what you expect. Okay. Okay. It's not any of the answers coming from you are going to be quite boring. So <laughs> I, I don't worry. This about is going to take some explaining. Um, okay. The book's plotline, Annie, Elspeth, and the plotline of the book all resulted from a botched first date. I had a first date that was just, it was horrible. I was having, it was, we were having a coffee date, and um, about half an hour into the coffee date, <laughs> the guy that I was having the date with leaned back in his chair, and he said, um, you know, I think we're destined to be great friends. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it kind of puts the kibosh on the conversation. Yeah. And you know, I wrapped up the. I felt stupid. I wrapped up the conversation and said my goodbyes. I got in my car and I started driving home. And while I was driving home, I actually thought I actually I can remember this really vividly. I thought you know things are only inevitable if you allow them to be. <laughs> so while I was driving home, I made up these two characters in my head. At the time, her name was Anastasia Biddleton. And the other one was Elizabeth Grundy. And I had Annie. I saw Annie as this woman who lived in contemporary San Francisco. And I used to see all these people. You know, San Francisco is really quite quirky, right? And I used to go out into the hate and I'd see, you know, people walking around in the most outlandish clothes. So I just, I, I created this image of her wearing Victorian dresses. And then... Um, because of that Victorian vibe, I started thinking of Elspeth Grundy, and I thought of her, well, the name made me think of this old school mom. And then I wanted to, I said, well, she is going to be a Victorian, so I put her in the past. Sorry, excuse me. Oh, I've got three dachshunds in my house right now, so. Uh, are they miniatures? Yes. I used to, my first dog was a miniature dachshund. Oh, cool. <laughs> Princess Heidi von Stelzink. I'll tell you about that. <laughs> oh, <later>. my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, um, so I, I saw Annie and Elspeth as being friends. And I had, when I got home, 
I had Annie, um, oh, that's my husband. I had Annie uh, <laughs> um, write a letter to Elspeth talking about her best friend, Scott, and how he has a crush on this guy. And I then emailed that to this failed date's work email address. <laughs> and um, I woke up the next morning, got a phone call from him. I got a phone call and I answered it and it's him and he's laughing his butt off. And he's actually at work. And I can hear people in the background laughing. And he said, where did this letter come from? I said, oh, well, I don't know. I just kind of dreamt it up. And he said, oh, my God. He said, this is hysterical. He said, he said there need to be more letters. Annie has to write more. I said, oh, sadly, she can't. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, <laughs> well, why not? And I said, well, because Elizabeth has to write back. Because it's the obvious thing in the world. And um, there was this long pause. And he said, Oh, am I Elspeth? <laughs> uh, I actually made him write me back from Elspeth's perspective. And we started writing these letters back and forth. And I started just calling them the Annie L letters. And um, I can tell you right off the bat that Elspeth had really bad grammar for a school mom. Oh. <laughs> and so they just kind of, it just became a seed that just kind of sat in the back of my head. And then um, when I went to write, to start writing a, a, my first manuscript, those were my characters that I, that I started with. And um, I needed some way for them to be able to communicate, right? For them to be able to somehow for them to be in each other's pockets, so to speak. And frankly, I just kept on seeing the um, <clears throat> Wizard of Oz, the house dropped in the wheat field. And I mm. could see Annie just walking out her back door and walking across the wheat field and, you know, to go meet with, um, Elspeth. And so I just kept thinking she's walking out her back door. There has to be something strange about that door. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started developing the time travel conduit concept. And then I had to kind of develop my own little science around it. And that brought in David Abbott. Mm-hmm. So that's how the time travel conduit, the door came into being. And I have to be honest, I have to find my old notes. I actually have notes and notes and notes of this fake science that I created that allows time travel to happen. And it has to do with, you know, there being distinct resonances all over the planet and how the door simply taps into those resonances. It doesn't actually move the people that actually kind of ushers them through these different resonances and (laughs) kind of kooky. You kind of have to do that when it comes to time travel in literature and television, because it's so intricate to make it happen that you just kind of, You've got to do it that way because there's easy to poke holes in it. Well, I think, yeah, exactly. I think that if you don't, it, there's something that doesn't feel authentic about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, I mean, you have to really give that. You'd be surprised at how much thought has to go in, has to go into something like that before you even start writing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I don't think that's boring at all. That That is not a boring story. <laughs> None of it like is boring. <laughs> I am not a physics major. I <laughs> um, you know me, but I've never watched an episode of Doctor Who. Just shoot me now. It's okay. It's okay. I can forgive you. I can find it in my heart to forgive you. But I can say that when I had written, when I had finished the manuscript, and I was, um, I was probably on my third draft, somebody had said something to me. He said, have you ever read this book called The Time Traveler's Wife? And I hadn't read it yet. And I went and read that book 
and nearly lost my plot because that book is so beautiful. Oh, I bawled like a baby at the end of that yeah, book. Yeah, God, just such a Because baby. I didn't like it. Well, either you love it or you hate it, right? Yeah, I yeah, guess either so. Either love it, so I don't know. It just really, it really grabbed me. Oh, I, I bawled. I was sitting, I remember when I finished reading that book and I was sitting in my car at on my lunch hour, just sitting in my car, reading this book, bawling. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had to go back to work and finish my job. Well, and I, could, I, I, I did that recently with another book. God, my God. I, I think I just, I think I cried throughout, in, throughout the last half of the book. No, which well, book what else do you want to go now? Well, you don't, I mean, if you don't know which book it was, it becomes so obvious when I say it. Have either of you read The Nightingale? No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Did you, have you oh, read my it? God. I am right there with you. Yes. Yeah, I, I and, cried and cried and cried and cried. Yes. What was bad for me was that I was actually at work, and it was a quiet day in my office, and we didn't have any clients coming in, so... Of course, I pull up my phone with the Kindle on it and start reading, and yeah, I'm crying in my office and hoping nobody walks in because oh, that, that's just a heartbreaker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even while I was reading your book, at a certain point, I text Diana and I said, "I'm going to need tissues at the end of this book, aren't I?" Yeah. Oh, um, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> and then you get to that point when Annie comes back and everything's kind of like hitting the yeah. fan, I am sitting going, Oh no, don't do this to me. <laughs> Not right now. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that because I can remember every sentence that I wrote and how I was responding as I was writing the sentences. <laughs> so I can only just hope that the reader responds the same way. Well, I, this month, so um, just as a little side note, um, I'm one class away from finishing my bachelor's degree, and this month I had my huge project due. So I, my reading time was like down to very, very minimal. Yeah. So I'm up last night until like midnight, going, I have to finish this book. <laughs> well, I hope it didn't feel like homework. <laughs> no, no. Oh my gosh. And and like everyone's asleep. My, you know, I have family in town for things. Giving everyone else passes out at you know 9 p.m. and I'm sitting here with my book and there's no one here to freak out with so I'm sitting here and going, oh shit, oh no, <laughs> there's no one. I have no one right now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but it yeah, so it was it was crazy, and I don't. I don't, I've never done this with books, but I actually started a list of quotes that I loved from this book because their writing was so beautiful. And Ooh. I wrote down quotes and what page they were on and I wrote the whole thing down because some of the, it's, it's beautiful. Thank you. Oh my God. Now I'm going to start crying. Uh, that was really important to me too. I didn't want to have, I didn't want a reader to just simply have the experience of a story. I wanted them to, to also, I, I was hoping they would fall in love with the words themselves, with the way I put them on the page. And I really worked hard at that. I mean, there, this, there were a lot of drafts that went into creating this book. You know, and, and, and it's a learning process. You know, when I, when I wrote the first draft, oh my gosh, I, um, 
when I wrote my first line of dialogue, I said, I'm writing exposition, blah, 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 blah. And then I get to my first line of dialogue, and I was like, how do you write dialogue? I actually walked over to my library and opened up a page and went, oh, okay, you indent, quotation mark, capitalize, <laughs> dialogue, comma, close it, dialogue tag, period. And that's actually, I mean, that's how green I was when I wrote the first draft. But we all got to start somewhere. Yeah. Okay, so Michelle, I'm curious, what were some of your favorite quotes? Because I've got my favorite quote. Because I think we should share them since we brought it up. Well, let me let me pull it up. Here, quote, you can't see it, but it says quotes from Annie Astor. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite one, and I had to stop writing because the whole speech that Annie gives to Christian when she gets back and, and she knows that something's not right with her, yeah. um, that whole speech that she gives him not to be afraid and and not to hold himself back just because for for the sake of acceptance. I loved that. But my phone was charging, and it was across the room, and I was in bed, and I was like, I, I don't want to get up. <laughs> my favorite short quote was by Elsbeth, and, and it was, Never lower yourself for others. Make them rise to you. Whether they can or not is their burden, not yours. And that was on page 53 by the way. Yeah, that was in one of her letters. That's when she was, that was when she was finally writing letters where she was not snarky throughout the whole letter to Annie. She's mm -hmm. so offended that Annie's house is shown up in the middle of her, on, the, on her back 40. <laughs> I love that part. I love snarky L. It was so fun. My favorite scene was um, with Christian and Edmund when they're finally confessing their love not to give away too many spoilers. That was my favorite part of the whole book. I swooned at that point. Um, You're killing me. I love it. I'm so happy to hear that. I'm just, <laughs> well, my favorite quote, though, is, is um, perhaps that is the way of friends, to love one another for their imperfections, not despite them. And that's just so very true, and I love that one. That was my favorite. I'm, I'm just sitting here giggling inside. Oh, yay. <laughs> well, so another question that I have is there are so many subplots in your story, and, you know, I started reading it before everything picked up for my class, and I was able to really sit down, So, and then I had to take a break, and I came back, and I was like, okay, wait. So what's going on? Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, yeah. how, and, and I mean, you said before that you basically just kind of like stream of conscious wrote this story. How did you map all of this out? Because there's a lot going on. Okay. Well, it all begins with Annie and Elizabeth, right? It, you know, that's the primary relationship. And I kind of looked at it. I almost created a, a, a map in my head. So here's, Annie and here's Elspeth and here's the, 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 the relationship between the two. And then um, I create, Annie needed her sidekick, her loyal sidekick. So I create Christian. And then um, Christian was a very important character to me. And so I needed to give Christian a story of his own that would be folded into the whole, whole story. And so I created Edmund to be part of the Christian subplot. So then you have Annie and Elspeth here, and you have Christian and Edmund here, and you have these two lines. And then you have this line connecting um, Christian and Annie. Then Annie goes back in the past, and she can't navigate the past without some help, right? Mm -hmm. So that brings in Cap'n, the little 12-year-old the little orphan. 
And so I then create this relationship up here. So I have these three, I have these three lines, this line here, this line here, and then this line going up here. And then all of a sudden um, Christian is connected to Annie and um, any, any Elspeth subplot is the most important plot, but I did want to give strength to the subplot, but then Edmund was kind of, all he was doing was supporting Christian. So I wanted to connect him to Elspeth in some way. And so basically what happened was I started kind of just, I was creating a, a map in my mind, trying to create a balance primarily because I realized what the story was about for me. And this may shock you, but the story is about loneliness. Um, it's about um, misfits. Misfits trek through the pages of this book. And each one of the characters is actually almost a representation of something. Annie represents chronic illness and how we can marginalize people who are chronically ill. We kind of pretend that they're not there in some ways. Um, Elspeth represents old age and how we and how we kind of isolate people who you know who are in their senescence. Um, Christian. Um, represents a man who is struggling with his identity, especially his identity, his sexual identity, because he wants so desperately to be seen as a good person, because he is a good person, right? Mm -hmm. Really, that's why I named him Christian. He was, mm -hmm. he is the most Christian person in the entire cast, but he um, has deals with a lot of shame because of this secret that he's pushed so far within his subconscious and it actually causes him to stutter. So mm -hmm. the fact that Christian hides his sexuality has affected, affected him physically, physiologically. And I needed somebody then to bring Christian out and to, you know, to make him a whole person. And, and I thought Edmund was the most, was interesting in this way because Edmund is a functional drag, drug addict. Mm -hmm. So, great person but he has this demon and then the last one of course is captain who represents orphanhood so uh, you know this book is all about loneliness and i needed to find a way i had to find a way to tie all of these people together so that they become a family so that they're no longer lonely so the lonely people become a family that's no longer lonely so you know the rest of the plot you know it's kind of crazy it goes i mean it's travel and there's a murder mystery and all of this stuff but really at its heart it's about these people finding each other and creating a family and that's why um, I wanted to do this before the month of November because obviously here in the States it's Thanksgiving and it was we kind of seemed to find these themes for the month like September was Shakespeare last last month we did um, a murder mystery book and it was like okay I want to do something that's about family and this was the first book that came to mind that uh, dealt with that because family isn't all about the people that you're born into. Right. It's the family that you end up creating for yourself. And that was what a lot of the book was about for me. It was just these people coming together and realizing that they have their own family. The, the, thank you. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I don't know that's, also, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> kind of answered another question that I had while I was, um, you know, as I finished the book, I kept thinking, you know, Annie, she stands on her own just with the story. And I, and I kind of wondered, well, why, why add, you know, why, why add the illness? She doesn't, it's not really 
essential to the plot runs without without the illness. But I mean, now that you've yeah, explained. I'm I and yeah, and I mean, listen. You know, I, my head is so wrapped up in the new manuscript. I probably I could probably give you another dozen reasons why I gave um, Annie made her chronically ill, uh, but I, I wanted to make her physically frail but strong in character. You know, I wanted that real irony. You know, I wanted she be an I wanted her to be an ironic person. She's Juan. You know, her last name is Astor. And not because of the rich family. I named her after the late blooming flower that's so delicate. Hmm. So, you know, there's, there, there were no, I mean, I was very conscious about the names that I chose for all my characters. You know, like I said, Christian, um, I chose him quite, that name quite deliberately. Um, because he, you know, while he thinks that he's not a good person, he is. He is like the... He's, he is the, you know, the all good person. He's the representation of a good person and as loyal as they come. Right. So, and you have Annie Astor, the you know, late blooming flower. Um, I chose Elspeth Grundy because the sound now, the sound of her name is just so dowdy. <laughs> and it's a cantankerous sounding name. Right. And, and she's a really cantankerous character. So, and then um, Edmund, um, I actually chose the name Edmund because it's actually a take on a very close friend's name who who died of an overdose. So, I saw that on in the dedication, yeah. and I and I was going to ask about it, but I wasn't sure if. Oh, you know, feel free to ask me anything. <laughs> so yeah. there was a real life Edmund. Edmund was actually the guy that I had the coffee date with. Mm. We okay. ended up being together for four years. And his prognostication ended up being true when he said that we were destined to be um, best friends because we realized we made really, really good friends. And uh -huh. we, we became the best of friends. And then when I met Mike um, many years later um, and I was writing the book and I was living in, and I'm living in New Zealand, um, um, the guy, the gentleman's name is Todd Menard. So um, it's Edmund Martin and Todd's middle name was Edmund. So, I took Menard and I just, I just played with that to, to make it, um, Edmund Martin. Mm -hmm. And um, um, Todd and I were actually on Skype together planning his first international trip. He was going to get his passport. And he was coming to visit Mike and me in New Zealand. This was just before the book was going out into production. And um, after he planned the trip, we spent two hours on Skype. Um, two weeks later, I got an email from his sister letting me know that he had passed away. Oh. So he never even, he never saw the book make its way to production. Oh, that makes me want to cry now. <laughs> so well, I don't want anybody to cry, but it's <laughs> but, it's, but it, it's true, and it and it's and it is sad. It's very sad. Yeah. So anyway, that story. That's that. There's that story. <laughs> well, well, Michelle, did you have another question that you wanted to add in, or is it my turn? Uh, it's your turn. We just lost track with the questions and everything because we're having such a great conversation here. <laughs> um, let's see here. Okay, here's a good one. Why does Color collect pinkies from his victims? <laughs> because we all have those weird collections, and his, I think, might be the weirdest of them all. Um, because I, Color is evil. You know, you've got, this, you've got this dynamic duo. You've got um, you've got Ambrosia's color, and you've got Danier. And if you 
if you if you didn't catch on it, catch it, Daniel, you don't know whether that's his first name or his last name. He only goes by mm-hmm. Dan. And um, Daniel does all the dirty work for for color. And um, I had to reach. There's a point in the manuscript where I had to make it clear to the reader that Ambrosia's color wasn't just a hard hitting businessman who had a you know who was had a, a crummy side. I needed the reader to understand that he was truly insane, <laughs> that he was demented. <laughs> and so. Um, when I actually went with the, you know, him, the pinky fingers of his pinky fingers of his victims, I actually had written a section that was so long and so <laughs> gross. I mean, I really piled it on. Do you remember the scene he's actually where he's actually in his office and he actually cups his hand around a cockroach and he picks up the cockroach and then he pins the cockroach on the, you know, the the insect entomology set. And he yeah. cigar and he burns off the cockroach's legs. Uh-huh. I took it even further. Oh man! <laughs> and and my publishing house said, "Pull it in, read it back." <laughs> <laughs> so I just it was it was really I, you know, because there's a reveal around um, Ambrose's color and Daniel also, right? And mm-hmm. I wanted to make that crazy reveal. Um understandable and so I needed to cross a threshold to where the reader realizes he's nuts <laughs> well you did it <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know I have to, when you write I remember writing that and you're kind of like unleashing something and it's like it was actually kind of fun to write because it was just so weird and awful <laughs> Can't explain it better than that. That's a wonderful dark side of being a writer. I know um, people would be disturbed by my search histories that <laughs> I've done for my own writing. Uh, for the one manuscript that I'm, I'm getting ready to publish, I've got all these like weird like diseases in the search history. And then the one I'm doing for National November Writers Month, I had I did this search about landmines in World War II and the injuries from landmines. So I had all these really weird things in my search history. Uh, yeah, I'm, I do not want anybody to see what my research history looks like right now for this new book because <laughs> there's some craziness. There's some more craziness going on. Yeah, I'm <laughs> curious about this new book. What's? Can you tell us a little bit about what it's about? A little sneak peek. Are you not ready to talk about it? Um, I'm really. I'm actually getting really excited about it. Um, I. I I'm really getting excited about it. Um, the primary, the protagonist, it's actually, there are two, there are co-protagonists. One's a man, one's a woman. They're both young. The young man is in his early twenties. He is a, um, he was, his mother was struck by lightning during childbirth. Huh. And, um, it's a little crazy and she comes out of it fine, but as a result of this lightning strike, um, he has no skin pigment whatsoever, not even in his eyes. So he's snow white and even the, um, he has no coloration in his eyes. There's snow white also. And because his appearance, he's actually quite beautiful, but because his appearance is so shocking, he startles people so badly that they get the startle reaction to him and, and it either goes to their feet or their fists. Either they run away from him or they want to beat him up. And he, and he's the, he's just a very sweet soul, but he's a little, he's, he's quite intelligent, but he has a naivete to him. 
And he's, as a result of all this bullying that he's acquired, that he's taken on in his life, and because of some really, some really unfortunate things, he becomes a, um, a shut-in and a night owl. And he lives in this little apartment in San Francisco. So he's from Louisiana, mm-hmm. but he now lives in San Francisco. And he um, writes children's stories in verse under a pseudonym. And his, his pseudonym is actually quite famous, but nobody even knows that nobody knows who the person is. It's kind of like Dr. Seuss. And and so I'm actually weaving all this poetry into the book, but this, um, my character, um, the book is, um, the book, the title of the book is his name. And he comes from the Pickens family and his first name is easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the book is easy Pickens. And then his co-protagonist um, in this crazy book is this um, really lovely young lady who has um, this disease called osteogenesis imperfecta. Are either one of you familiar with that? I am not. No. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And it's also called the brittle bones disease. Oh. I watched so, enough Grey's Anatomy that now it sounds familiar. Yeah, so she actually um, has brittle bones disease, and she she's also a recluse and a and a, she's a shut in as a result because um, her bone she's now getting better, but her bo- she has type one OI, which is the mildest form of it. But her bones used to break so often and so easily that she shuns people. She stays away from people, and it's how they come together and the adventure they go on. And I'm actually getting quite excited about it. It sounds like another great book. I, I'm looking forward to this one. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm you know, I threw out, I probably threw out 400 pages, threw, all, threw it all away. I mean, it's sitting in a file somewhere, but I started mm-hmm. over because I, it just wasn't doing justice to my characters. And now mm-hmm. I'm finally starting to settle in with them and I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm excited. I'm actually getting, you know, impatient. I want to be done with this book, but I want to take it slowly to make sure that everything just, 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 uh-huh. so uh-huh. who knows when it's done. <laughs> well, we'll read it once it's, uh, once it's finished. I will we'll let you know. Now I have a question about time differences. So there's the obvious, back to Annie Astor, between Annie and Elsbeth, there's obviously the, the time difference, the time traveling time difference. But there's like that one little mention that there's a two hour time difference too. Yeah. And I just thought that was kind of, it was so strange that it was just mentioned once and it was never brought up again. But what was the meaning behind it? I can't believe you've asked that because nobody else has. Really? It has a very specific purpose, and it's actually going to answer two more of your questions that you were talking to me about earlier. Mm -hmm. So um, it has to do with the second book. So there's actually actually a follow-up book to The Women Call Me Life of Annie Astor. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's that that little thing that – that little two-hour time difference actually plays a part in the next book. <laughs> and I'm just completely stunned that you picked it up. <laughs> well, that also answers the other question that 
that Michelle had of um, in Captain's letter where she's like, I'll see you again. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> she's like, Michelle sends me the yeah, list. I have to tell you, I'm so thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you why I'm so thrilled that you brought that up. Because there are some people who reviewed the book and they said, I love this book, but there are some things that weren't tied up in the end. And they actually <laughs> got you know annoyed. I was like, well, dude. <laughs> Give me a minute. Book. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, so, yeah I, that, that usually kind of, when I see things that aren't tied up in the end, it's like, okay, there, there's going to be a sequel. There's there's bound to be a sequel if it's not tied up. So I I never fault an author for that. Very rarely. And but the funny thing, oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say the funny thing is that um, I I have the the next book all mapped out and it's ready. I, mm-hmm. I, and I probably have 150 pages written and I can just I could write that thing up. But my agent said you never write unless you sell as a pair. You never write your sequel after your debut. You write another standalone and you come back to the sequel. So, why? It's not <laughs> to ask why. I just go okay. <laughs> That's see, but it was vague enough that you, I didn't. I wondered if there might be a sequel, but it was kind of just like just hints here and there that it wasn't obvious. Well, that- you picked up three of them. You picked up three of the hints because <laughs> I did. Oh, God, you want me to come up to that other one that you've written? Can I jump in? <laughs> Go for it. So I'm quite proud of myself. Um, right now. Hang on. Hold on. Let me find it. Um, okay. It was your last question. Let's pretend I didn't say oh. that. You can just ask me the last question. Okay. So who was the man that Captain saw in the living room when she was planting the money clip on David's body? Was it David himself? Well, <laughs> um, no, it was not. And that goes back to, that actually goes back to the first page of the book. Wait, wait, hang on, I've got it here. Do you remember, oh, you do you remember the, on the first page, the very first letter that Abbott writes to Randall, the priest? Yeah. Okay, so he writes, um, Randall, I've not forgotten our quarrel, but I'm asking you to put that aside for the sake of scholarship and the friendship we once shared. You were right, I fear. I meddled in something beyond my understanding. The time travel conduit works. I've shaped it as a door, but not, I suspect, by science or my own hand. You are the only person who won't think me paranoid when I put words to my suspicion. Something slumbers within it. Something with designs of its own. (laughs) (laughs) And there's another... Oh, oh. <laughs> so there's actually another hint in the book that, that you that you probably just kind of that and I'm sure you caught it, but you just kind of just kept going through. But there's actually another hint. There the book the door, something has been trapped in the door when it was first made by David. And it's something that's a little that ha, that's yeah. I remember catching that. Because then there's that there have I figured there had to be something with um, the whole Indian thing that Edmund yeah, ends yeah, up seeing. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you don't explain that, so that's it had to be yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that killed me. I wanted to explain it. I thought, no, because that's part of the second book. I've got to kind of hold back on that. So, <laughs> so yeah. 
Um, so the door isn't just a thing. The door is also a who. Okay. Love it. It's like the TARDIS in Doctor Who. Kind of. Kind of I, mean, I guess. Yeah, I guess. But, yeah, you um, can't move up back and watch Doctor Who now. You can I know. Yeah. Of the okay. Because the TARDIS isn't just a thing. It's a living, breathing entity. I hadn't, see, I didn't know that. See, my I, a very dear friend of mine from high school has been telling me to watch Doctor Who ever since she read my book. Because uh-huh. we've, we've talked about a couple of these things. Because she's like, she won't take no for an answer. She's like, you got to tell me what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now you've got two people telling you you need to go back and watch Doctor Who. And I think now you need to go and actually do it. Okay. All right. I will. I have to finish (laughs) the last season of Downton Abbey, and then I will watch Doctor Who. (laughs) Yes. That's another one to start. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to hop over to your last question. But anyway, just they all tied together. And I was just laughing. While I was reading your questions, I was like, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm so feeling anyway, uh, well you can tell who the Ravenclaw in this relationship between Michelle and I are say that again <laughs> She's the Ra- oh. you can tell who which one of us is the Ravenclaw which that's yeah it's Michelle have you taken I haven't taken that test I need to take the test I, I think I haven't taken the test because I so desperately want to be in Gryffindor <laughs> <laughs> and I'm you afraid see, I'm well I'm probably the test that it, it, I don't think it's accurate enough because I'm Slytherin. I am Slytherin to a T. The good Slytherin, not necessarily the bad okay. Slytherin. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm a Slytherin. Um, but it always, but it places me in Ravenclaw because I'm such a book nerd. So it's, I don't know. I don't trust it. I think it also goes by what the, you know, and the sorting hat tells you. It's, you know, whatever you choose. No, but there's the oh, video wow. you need to watch. We will send you the link oh, yes. to the video. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, send it to me. All right. All right. I'll be brave. Yeah, I think I, I sent um, Michelle the video because it helped for me to determine what house I actually was. And Michelle wasn't sure what house she was when I sent the video. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I'm Ravenclaw for sure. Well, we have to keep reminding ourselves that um, Harry was actually going to be in Slytherin first because of his drive, you know, and, and exactly. you know, I mean, for a multitude of reasons, but. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just never suggest <laughs> <best. laughs> certain things you don't want to know. But anyway. So okay, well, that told, okay, that answers like my last two questions. I'm because, sorry, but I really blow it. No, 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 it's fine. no. <laughs> this is one of the great discussions that you're buying. Oh, 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 don't forget that auction question. I love that question. <laughs> Auction question. <laughs> auction question. That's an important one. <laughs> okay, do you want to ask that one, Diana? Sure, I will ask that one. <laughs> <laughs> During the auction, Annie is tempted to bid on a lamp designed by Clara Driscoll because of a rumor she heard that the famous Tiffany's success owes credit to her designs instead of Lewis Comfort, Tiffany's. Is that an actual rumor? Oh, my phone just, okay, there we go. What made you throw that little fun fact into the story? And fun fact is in quotes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it is a rumor. And actually, there's a lot of evidence behind that rumor. There's some strong evidence that um, Clara Driscoll actually had done some of the, you know, those, those really, those iconic lamps that she was actually the one who, who designed those lamps. 
Hmm. And um, it was my it was my nod to feminism because during the auction, if you if you recall the beginning at the beginning of the auction, the first thing I really kind of play on is the auction of these um, of these of Mary Cassatt's artwork, um, some of her Japanese prints, and. Hmm. Um, Mary Cassatt was, was um, she's one of my favorite artists of all time. She's an American impressionist. She's probably the only American who's really known along with the, you know, the big group, Monet, Degas, you know, um, all the biggies. And um, she was a bit of a feminist herself. And um, she was, had a really strong personality. And I was writing a book about strong women. And I wanted to sneak in feminist references <laughs> Nice. <laughs> so, um, so I threw in um, Mary Cassatt and Clara Driscoll, and and I also um, the um, God. Why am I drawing a blank on her name? The lady that actually purchased them. At, you know, it's the same woman that ends up buying all of these really, really you know these really pieces that end up being really valuable, mm-hmm. and um, she's outbidding all these men you know, who are trying to buy them also. And she, and, you know, I just, it was just the whole thing was, you know, it was just a big feminist, you know, thumbs up, so to speak. Oh, cool. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, so, I was there, just, I'm like, is that true? <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's weird the kind of things that you just stumble onto when you're writing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just everything's so random. And I, um... I was very purposeful about Mary Cassatt and then I wanted another feminist reference. And so I just kept on thinking about household items in the Victorian period. And of course the first, I mean, the first thing I thought of was Tiffany, you know? And so um, I just started doing a little poking around and that's when I found, you know, the Clara Driscoll rumor. And I thought, well, this is perfect. Very cool. Well, I, I, I remember reading that and going, that seems like really specific to to not be untrue, but I, I had to ask because, and that, that was one that I got up and, and wrote down because I didn't want to forget it. <laughs> when you're, you know, when you're writing a manuscript and um, when you spend the time, I spent on this one because believe me, um, I mean, if I told you the number of, of rejections I got from agents, you would just, you'd roll your eyes. And so it was just a, it was a process of just, you know, improving upon, you know, my, my previous failure. Yeah. yeah. Until I finally crossed this threshold. And the weird thing was, um, I had, I, I got over, uh, over 120 rejection letters. And then when I got, and then when I got my, um, was offered um, agency, and it was in the most interesting, again, really interesting story. Within three, de- within two days, I got three more offers. So I went from 122 rejections to four offers in two days. Oh wow! Wow. <laughs> I mean, talk about a weird. I mean, not weird. This is weird. Do you remember, like, you know, there are those moments in your life where you remember exactly what you were doing when it happened. Oh. Do you remember what you were doing when you got that first offer? Oh yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you. You're not. You're, you're being too coy. I'm going to tell you. Um, I had got. I had so many rejections that I was. I started to recycle agents, and you don't requery agents. So what I was doing was I was changing my query letter a little bit, and I was changing the title of the book. 
<laughs> I would come back to the same ages, but I and I had discovered I was just, I had this they have this thing um, when you when you send a query everything you know the whole process of finding an agent begins with this thing called a query letter, and it's just it's the bane of all authors, and um, unless you have a personal connection with that author, you go into this thing called a slush pile, and they probably get um, fifty queries a day, you know, and so. You have like ten seconds to get their attention, and you know, and that's it. Or they just they move past you. And I, I decided I need to, you know, reduce the degree of separation so that I could, you know, get a little bit, you know, maybe get a minute of their time. And so I started taking online courses through Writers Digest University. You okay. Pay, you pay like fifty, sixty dollars, and they have these courses on like how to properly write a query letter. Well, I would only take a class. If I saw that an agent was facilitating it, and if the agent reserved the right to request material, and I would take classes I didn't need <laughs> because, because I was just like, okay. So I, I, there's, I was actually um, there's this one course on how to write a query letter, which I had written mine five thousand times, and that was being facilitated by these two agents that I wasn't familiar with, and. Um, if you sent your query letter into them soon enough, they were actually going to review it in front of this whole class online. So, you know, you're all scattered over the world. And um, I was in Texas visiting my parents at the time. Oh, hello. <laughs> the one who decided to bark because she wanted on my lap. Okay. Um, well, so I met my parents in Texas. I'm on their back deck. I have a glass of tea. I sign the, just like our, our sign in, I get a notice that says, would you like time to join the class? I click on it. I'm in the class and these two agents start talking and they are hilarious. They are Abbott and Costello. They are brilliant. <laughs> and they're talking about the query process and how you write a letter. And I'm just laughing at everything they say. And then they say at one point, one of them says, okay, now it's time to review some of the query letters. And then on the screen, an image pops up of this whole family of meerkats, and they're all hugging each other in fear. That's how funny, that's how funny these ladies were. And they said, just kidding. You don't need to be afraid of us. And then they started reviewing query letters. And they went through, and they were brilliant. They were incisive. They were, it was really educational and unbelievably brutal. And after having done six query letters, they had neither one of them had requested anything. They just kept going on. And I was like, okay, this is going to really suck. So I actually, I ran out of tea. So I went back to my parents' house and I poured myself some more tea and I came back out, put my laptop in my lap and I hear them say, okay, let's do another query letter. And then they both started to laugh. And they said, oh, this one. <laughs> and they said, ladies and gentlemen, here's an example of a query letter that breaks all the rules, but somehow works. And there's my query letter that popped on the screen. <laughs> and they both started going off on it and, and laughing and saying, and saying, we just love, and they both started arguing about who was going to request my novel, my, my manuscript. <laughs> and so they both ended up requesting my manuscript on, you know, during the class. And uh -huh. um, I sent it, I was, you know, I was peeing my pants to be perfectly honest. And I sent my manuscript to them, both of them the following day. And then, um, <clears throat> I flew home back to New Zealand the next day. And then 
The next day, there's an email from my best friend in San Francisco. I always stay at his house when I'm in San Francisco, who, by the way, he is the, is the person who inspired Elspeth, the character Elspeth. Oh, how fun. My best friend, and he is this, he's this just big old cantankerous old fart, and I love him to death. But he, all I had to do was imagine him at a calico dress in a wheat field, and I had Elspeth. He was, it was just easy. So anyway, I got an email from him. And the email says, Scott, who the hell is Barbara Powell? And I just woke up and I'm reading his email. Who the hell is Barbara Powell? And I'm rolling back to sleep and I went, <gasps> and I sat up in bed. And the first thing I jumped out of bed and the first thing I did was I called Steve. Because Steve can be really, really cranky if he doesn't know who people are. And I called him and said, Hey, Steve. Hey, hon. And he goes, Hey, you said you're up early. I said, Yeah, just a quick question for you. I see your message. Um, did you speak to this person? Because no, no, I just got a voicemail from her. Why? I said, oh, no reason. <laughs> All I could think was thank you for not having talked to her. <laughs> then, I, then I called the number, and um, a, a lady answered from the agency. I said, hi, my name is Scott Wilbanks. I believe that Barbara Powell is expecting my phone call. She said, um, let me see if she's available. She put me on hold. And then I expected her to come back on and patch me through. Instead, I hear another voice saying, hey. I said, oh, hi. Um, is this Barbara Powell? And she said, well, it better be. I'm wearing her pants. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was enough for me. I mean, she could have been, you know, she could have been a witch doctor for all I cared. She was just too funny. I, I said, okay, that's great. And... Um, <laughs> Then I, and I, you know, I signed with her. And it wasn't until after I signed with her that I found out that she was a really big deal. So, oh, wow. yeah. So, anyway, that's my story. Neat. And I think my husband's, like, motioning to me because we're supposed to be at dinner in 15 minutes. Oh, no. Well, I... <laughs> Well, our time, we're a little over our time anyway, so we will let you go. Thank you so much for yes, joining us. You. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. This was a blast. And if you have any more questions, just email me or, or whatever. So We definitely Yes, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And please continue harassing me on, on Twitter. That's fun. <laughs> oh, we will. <laughs> okay. All right. I got it. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and we truly appreciate you checking out the bonus content from Wine Women of Words. Again, for more, just check out their stuff on YouTube, Google Play, and podcast.com. We appreciate, again, you listening to this episode of the Pop Culture Cosmos. Here's hoping you have yourself a great day. <laughs>